Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Hello, everyone. We are in the middle of a series we have lovingly called Batman v Superman, covering our two favorite superheroes. Last up in our trilogy of Batman episodes is Batman Mask of the Phantasm, arguably the greatest animated film ever made about the Caped Crusader. It's a favorite of mine, and me being the Batman guy and all, but I'm pretty certain that this was a first time viewing for Patrick, and so that makes me very excited to find out what he thought. So... Off we go with one word takeaways to get us started. Patrick? The summation of my experience with this film, which was a first time watch for me, uh, would be the word appropriate. As someone who, when he thinks about Batman, he thinks about the duplicity of Batman and Bruce Wayne being equally important. This served much more than as an origin story and more of just kind of a get to know you on a deeper level, understand the mythology of the transformation from Bruce to Batman. And not only was it really entertaining, but it was incredibly informative. I think it was probably one of my favorite, I won't call it origin stories necessarily, because we're not talking about the death of the parents and stuff, but really getting behind the struggle of what it meant to actually don the cowl. My guy, Superman, has his own struggles with being an alien on a planet like this. But when you're a human being and you're making the choice to become this thing, but battling that, wondering if it is a choice that you're making or if it's being made for you, Mask of the Phantasm really does get at the heart of what I believe the Batman-Bruce Wayne conflict is, something that I think is touched on in different iterations, but not so successfully as it was here. And, and this is a surprise to me. I mean, this is a 1993 film coming just after Batman the Animated Series, I think, was just launching or finishing. I can't remember when the run happened. And fans say that's arguably one of the best Batman series that you'll ever see. So seeing this come out and really kind of kick off the DC animated universe, just like Man of Steel was trying to do for the DCEU, I think this had a great launching point with the Cape Crusader, and and I really enjoyed it. Well, good. I'm glad, because we were going to have some major issues if you did not, <laughs> as I told you privately before this episode. Yeah. So thankfully, we can stay friends. Whew. And carry on. Well, I like that, Patrick, and I'm glad that you picked up on it because I agree that that is the primary theme of the film, the primary thing that makes it the best, among some other aspects, which we'll get into, of course. My one more takeaway was fresh. This film has a new original villain, which is kind of rare these days in comic book films. And I say these days as if, like, this movie just came out and, of course... This movie was from 1993, as you mentioned, but even going back to 1993, new villains didn't happen a lot. And for something like this, it was really refreshing. It's an extremely mature story. And by mature, I mean it is an adult tale, but yet it is not 
an TVMA adult tale. So it's not a violent, overly violent story. It's not, you know, got bad language to try and be too gritty and raw, but yet it's very heavy at times. Uh, it's got a touching story for an animated film. Usually these lean much more into comedy or really, really visceral action. It's got the sweetest and most tragic romance in Batman's history, in my opinion. And it's also a great time-jumping story structure that is perfectly implemented, I think, to reveal the history of his relationship with Andrea, as well as how he became the Batman, which, also keeping in line with my one more takeaway of Fresh, it's another entirely new take on his origin story, something that we had not seen before, and that makes it a lot of fun to watch, because that's one of the things that's so great about comics, Patrick, that those who truly follow both the books and, you know, have since gotten into the movies and into the TV shows that have b become, you know, into existence off of the, the comic book characters is that they can be iterated on. They can be reinvented and you can tell new stories about them in order to change up something about a character that has been drawn in books for 60 years or something. All that plus it's just unrivaled great animation and musical scoring for a non-Disney animated picture in the early 90s. It feels so new and unlike anything else, but at the same time, it's unquestionably still Batman. It is very much Batman. So I, I think it's fresh, uh, even rewatching it today in the modern era, and I think that's what makes it most special to me. Yeah, when you mentioned the origin story and just a fresh take on that, I think you're right. What gives comics such a great flavor to different audiences is you can basically attach yourself to an origin story. I do the same thing with Spider-Man. My favorite origin story is the one that involves him and Gwen Stacy, whereas I know that a lot of people really kind of move toward him and MJ, which is totally fine. That's part of the love that comic book characters can have as you iterate and reiterate and reiterate Obviously, for comic book creators, it becomes pr problematic when you are trying to explain one part of an origin story that was already addressed when you're adding something new. But thankfully, we have creators in the motion picture universe, both live and animated, who don't have to make that distinction, who can really say, this is the Batman story I want to tell. And being able to see this in the form of Mask of Phantasm, was fresh. It really did feel like it was a tale that I was somewhat familiar with, but didn't know a lot about. Same thing with Ra's al Ghul. That was, I think that's what makes it great, because you can attach things that are familiar to a wide audience and still inject them with the things that are specific to that character that may not be as familiar. That's the thing I love about stories of Superman that I haven't heard really more stories about Clark Kent that I've read that really make the character that much more appealing to me because it gives him more roundedness. And I think this story is another curve of that round character that we're getting to love in the form of Batman. Good stuff. Well, this is our spoiler warning listeners. If you have not seen mask of the phantasm, it is streamable on HBO max right now. I think pretty sure can't recall for absolute certainty, 
Um, it was either on DC Universe or HBO Max One, and DC Universe is kind of in the process of moving all their content, animated TV shows, live action movies, etc., onto HBO Mask Mask. <laughs> Got confused with the title. HBO Max. And so I think it's there, uh, streaming if you have that service. But if not, it's worth seeking out. I think you can buy it a lot of times for like five bucks and it's definitely worth that. You're going to get a couple of watches out of it for sure. So we're going to talk spoilers. Carry on with us if you've seen the film and you're ready to deep dive into this one. All right. So for many fans, this is the ultimate interpretation of the Batman and Bruce Wayne character put to screen. Patrick, so it's great that you picked up on that as a first-time viewing. We've just come from talking about what probably is the closest contender to that title, Nolan's Trilogy. And you mentioned because of Ra's al Ghul, and, and there are a lot of similarities to the way that the story of Batman and Bruce Wayne is told. Not the exact plot, but the way that the story focuses on that aspect of the character. And we're both big fans of those films and how it handled the duality. So I kind of wanted to see if you, I guess, would if you want to expand on how you felt about how this movie handled Bruce and Batman's dynamic. You obviously liked it. Um, and I think one of the key things that is tricky when we're doing a Bruce Batman story is how much time do we spend with Bruce? How much time do we spend as Batman? Does one overtake the other? Does one personality, you know, feel too dominant is the the editing is really key, to be honest, because you, you can't have a movie that is 50 percent Batman and then it just switches and it's 50 percent Bruce Wayne. So it's got to kind of ebb and flow back and forth between the character in a meaningful way. Did this movie do a good job of that for you? It took some getting used to because the flashback sequences, I think, are a really good storytelling device that allows you to logically go someplace else and not have to give any kind of exposition. Most of the time in this movie, it was through a paint, a picture of some kind that kind of recalled back. What threw me a little bit, Aaron, was that the sequences themselves, the flashback sequences, for better or for worse, felt visually identical to the actual sequences that we were looking at. If I had my druthers, I would have preferred at some points to say, you know, five years earlier or two years earlier. That way we weren't looking at a flashback sequence, but we were getting a hard cut because the sequences themselves were great. But at times, if I had looked away or if I, of course, I need to pause, you know, if, the movie, because if I need to go to the bathroom or something, but if I'd missed something, it would have kind of thrown me a little bit to go, wait, I thought we were just, oh, wait, flashback, we're still here. So there was no, like, dissolve. There wasn't anything differentiating that this was in the mind of Bruce Wayne as he's looking back at his first night as the Cape Crusader when he wasn't even Cape at that point. Or m moving into this early relationship with, uh, with, with Andrea and – or Andrea. But as I got used to it, as I got into that flow – I really enjoyed the balance because I think what it did is it reinforced how one contributed to the other. It reinforced how the actions of Bruce and the motivations of Bruce catapulted to the world of Batman. And 
while I think that the motive was, I won't call it plain, but very obvious justice and things like that, wasn't as complex as maybe Nolan's, the struggle that he has as he grows into this world, his motivations, I think, change over the course of the film. They move from a this is exciting, I can make a difference, this seems like something that I could really take on, to now I've got a relationship, how do I handle that? And then we get into these more recent sequences with Phantasm, and now his character, comic book, metaphorical, how you want to call it, are being questioned. He's being mistaken, or this guy's being mistaken as Batman, which means he's now being given... A different kind of image and so walking through how he got to where he was to the present day helps bring perspective to understand why he is the way he is like he's not out to just scare people he's not out to be a symbol this isn't nolan's batman he's out there to fight the bad guys and to use what i think aaron is probably some of the best depiction of detective work out there like i love that and I think that when you see these back and forth sequences, it helps kind of bring in a holistic picture of who this character is, not who these characters are. But it really reinforces the fact that Bruce and Batman are the same person and that there's not a lot that differentiates them in terms of their motives beyond just what they're wearing at the time. Yeah, I think that I actually don't mind the time jumps at all. Personally, I love them. And I think that it's interesting that you say that. I can see how it would be something that's divisive and sort of a preferential kind of concept where you would like to have it very you know, clearly laid out for you. Like, hey, we are in another time period. I, I also have seen the film many, many times. And so I don't remember what I was like the first time at this point and whether or not it confused me. So I know what's happening and I'm able to kind of know the structure. So it's fair. It's fair criticism. I, I think that one thing that is a really great of importance when you're doing Batman, my favorite types of Batman is what you brought up or what you said about detective work. And the the film does give him an opportunity to do that several times, both as Batman and as Bruce, and I like that a lot. So there are three or four specific examples that I just thought were so well done. And, and this is a tight movie. This is like an hour and 15 minutes long, so it's churning along. It's not giving us like overly dramatic long shots and moments to hold on to. But early in the film, we see, and, and I say early in the film, it doesn't necessarily mean early in the story, I guess, but because <laughs> we're moving around. But there's a moment where he's Bruce and he's sitting at the back computer and he's just, he's talking about like detecting this polymer that he got. It's after the very first initial action sequence where he busts in on the criminals, right? So it's present time. And Alfred is, like, very confused and makes a funny little snarky remark about, like, having no earthly idea what he's doing. But you see him as Bruce, dressed as Bruce, right? And just sitting there and able to do this detective work 
at his computer. And then later we get to see him at the gravesite scene after the phantasm has come to catch up with one of the other gangsters that came to, I guess, pay his respects to a dead gangster. It's a really weird culture that they've got because he comes with like this like flower wreath, but he's talking crap the whole time to this dead guy. I was like, so why are you here? I mean, like, is it out of some sense of, I don't know, just it's like a godfather th- obligation. Is what it's it an obligation. That's the right. I was going to say, yeah, that's the word I was looking for was obligation or something. It's very strange. But after that happens and he is talking about how there's like this chemical that he detects again at the gravesite murder scene. And so these are very Batman ways of finding things out. And I think that that can get lost sometimes in the fun of the character and in giving him neat weaponry toys and even neat tech toys. Sometimes how he utilizes that tech is not angled in the direction of detective work. Mm -hmm. And then later as Batman, we get to see him just doing the simple detective work as easy as just perched out on the ledge of a building across the streets and across the skyline from where Andrea is having dinner with arthur the councilman her friend and in the rain in he's got well it's beautifully animated this is what i love yeah. and I've, I've been going through i bought the animated series because i didn't watch it as a kid shockingly and so i've been watching through the animated series i'm probably 10 or 11 episodes in. it's phenomenal it really so far has lived up to all the high praise that i've heard about it my entire life but it's beautifully animated this scene in the rain and he's watching her through these these glasses and it reminded me of the connecting point that I had for Batman Begins, right? Where I talked about how he's about to infiltrate Scarecrow's warehouse and he's got this listening device and kind of peering through the walls and listening through the walls to hear what's going on and making his plan of how he's going to interact. And he's kind of doing that just old school surveillance as Batman here. And I like that. I also like (laughs) there's this fun little moment where he's, got a picture and he just draws a smile on the guy in the picture and realizes like it looks like the joker it's kind of corny but it's kind of cool too because he's like oh my gosh like it's the joker but it's it shows that kind of thing and for me that is what connects bruce wayne to batman in a lot of ways because i think of batman as such a strong man as a as a physically imposing character as the one who's going to tie you up and do all these things and i think of the bruce wayne persona even as much as i think of him as the playboy and there's a great line that kind of gets at the playboy nature of him here <laughs> arthur the councilman's talking to him at a party he's like seriously bruce it's almost the girls are talk you know like talking crap some girl comes up and throws a drink on him and he's like seriously bruce it's almost like you picked them because you know there's no chance of a serious relationship And of course, that will play in later to accept the one girl. But that's the Playboy Bruce that we get to see here as well. And then we get to see the intelligent side of Bruce in the detective scenes. And then we get to see Batman being Batman. And I I just think it's a great balance in this film. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And I don't see a lot of iterations of Batman where the detective side comes out in prominence. I mean, that's where he came from, Detective Comics. That's what we where we get him from before we actually get Batman. And so getting a chance to see 
not his quote wonderful toys <laughs> as jack nicholson would say in batman 89 but we get to see how he uses them we get to see the innovation and in a fun way i think it kind of reiterates the fact that the idea of batman or one idea of batman is that anybody can be batman i think that's a common thread to a lot of the different iterations is that he is not so distant from the world that he lives in that anyone could take up the cowl and be that and i think the detective aspect of it really is one of those components not that everyone can be an fbi agent but all of this starts with him being observant i mean there's a reason why bats you know have ears you know like sonar and they are able to you know use that sense in such a way it, it's obviously not a visual characteristic but it really does reinforce the idea that the character of batman the idea of a bat someone who is looking and always kind of observing the world around them and using every sense that they have batman does that from a detective standpoint and looking closely at photos and being able to see residue and make those connections and i think that's the side of batman that i enjoy the most in a funny way we kind of get that in batman forever when we have the Riddler who leaves all the the clues. As goofy as that is, that's detective work. It's figuring out the riddle. It's trying to understand and and get to the heart of that. The execution isn't great, but the fact is that's the kind of Batman that I would actually read and probably watch more of. I haven't seen the series, so you could probably tell me that I wonder if that's a strong component of the animated series. Oh, it is. It, it definitely is. Yeah. I mean, and we own it. So it's in voodoo. It's not like you have access for the rest of your life. It's there. I do. Just, um, this thing called time that I'm just struggling with. You don't have access to time. <laughs> uh, not as much as I'd like. You know, <laughs> all the stuff we cover. And There's all, you know, observant is a great word for it. And also he's very quick thinking. He is able to make decisions fast. And, like when he's getting chased by the cops in the film, it's actually very reminiscent of another scene from Batman Begins after the Scarecrow Warehouse that I was talking about, where which was also part of my connecting point because my connecting point was like a whole act of that film. But it, he's like running away from the cops and they're legit like shooting at him, trying to kill him because they think that he has taken these guys down, which is what happens in this film as well. And he brilliantly like takes his cowl and his cape and puts them onto this wooden thing and like sticks it on a, a wire and sends it off and they just shred it with machine gun fire but it allows him to escape right and even and it, it's even more connected to like batman begins because in that same scene he has taken rachel who has been afflicted and he is trying to get her to the bat cave so he puts her in the batmobile and this one is sort of uh, almost like that i i wonder somewhat if nolan unconsciously even was mimicking that scene because in this one he is running with his hood off and he gets into the car with andrea who saves him and she takes him to the bat cave and then she gets to you know be there with him as bruce but batman and same sort of thing happens with rachel in the bat cave as bruce and batman it's kind of cool anyway we let's talk about love love interest so we often get to see him romantically involved with selena kyle aka catwoman but this film gives us a brand new love interest in Andrea Beaumont. I wondered what qualities that you saw in her that you would say 
set her apart from someone like Selina or Talia al Ghul, two of Batman's primary love interests over the course of his history, and what makes her a compelling partner for both Batman and Bruce Wayne, or Batman or Bruce Wayne? Well, I think what sets her apart, Aaron, is the fact that she's not motivated by super heroic. She's not motivated by a bigger thing. She is a person just like Bruce, grounded in the world around her and affected by the world of crime for her. Her dad is connected to the mob in some way, shape, or form. And she comes across early on in the story as someone who is relatable to Bruce. Like, she comes from money, and she has tragedy in her life. And the moment that she and Bruce see each other at the gravesite is probably one of my favorite scenes because she essentially calls him out on his Bruceness, on his he's not the only one that is suffering here. He's not the only one that's lost something. And in a lot of ways, I think that appeals to him, not because she's his equal on the super heroic side, but that she's his equal on the human side, on the grounded Bruce Wayne side. And what differentiates her for me from characters like Selena and Talia is that they don't use their she doesn't, while she comes across as very sensual, she's not like sexy by default. She's very much, she's not a homegrown necessarily, but she doesn't have any sexuality to her in the way she that doesn't. It, she just doesn't. She's, but sophisticated is what she is. Right. Like she would be, I'm just going to say it, she'd be a Blake Lively to me. Someone who is elegant, who can carry herself in a way that is very beautiful but doesn't use that to necessarily manipulate or to try to get what she wants. And to me, that's what I think is appealing to Bruce about her is that she's different. She's not trying to get anything from Bruce really or anything at all. And I think that's what makes her attractive to him is that he has to pursue her. Whereas you look at the only really of the two, I only know about Selena because I've, you know, just, I don't know much about Talia apart from, the Dark Knight Rises, but she's not forcing herself on him. And I think that's what makes their world as a couple really, really inviting because, again, it's still a rich world that they're living in, but they're still a couple. They're not like king and queen. They're not like prince and princess here. They are Bruce Wayne and Andrea Belmont, and they do come from money, but they're not trying to be playboy and playgirl and try to take over the world with that celebrity. They're just trying to live their life. And Aaron, there are times when I almost, I don't know if I saw this, or maybe I just kind of like depicted it in my head, but I felt like they were laughing at times. Like they felt just very comfortable with each other. They felt like a couple that you would smile being around because they just enjoyed being with each other. I love that you said that because one of the things I wrote down in my notes was how much joy I got watching the flashback of them at the World's Fair. They're on a date. They're on a legitimate date. And it is just, it is the sweetest thing. And it makes you wish so badly that he could end up together with her more than any other female that he's really been involved with because of that. Because it's like you're expressing, it's a relationship that he, we've not seen for the character almost ever other than this movie. It's always 
an unfortunate pairing where they like each other for essential reasons first or in the heat of combat things get you know snarky and there's lots of clever dialogue between the two but the way that these two characters come together is by sharing something in common which is he meets her at the grave and he sees that she's there talking to her parents grave which is something that he does too they have this thing that connects them right in a way and i think it pulls them together closer the other big aspect of i think what makes it so unique is that they're together before he's batman and he in the origin story of this movie becomes batman essentially she plays a role in him becoming batman like she is a key cog in the development of that character and the way that at least in the direction of how it becomes a thing and a persona for him but I don't know of anyone other than maybe Rachel in the Nolan trilogy that it, and it hints at it that they were childhood friends, but we don't really get to see Bruce Wayne in a serious relationship with someone before becoming Batman and then having to navigate what that looks like as he becomes Batman. It's just a different angle and it's very unique and it's very interesting because of that, because of the psychology behind how that plays out you know he essentially becomes batman in this movie he starts to stop a man from stealing things he's with her in that scene and he goes up and tries to he actually it's really one of my favorite batman moments and all of batman lore honestly is when he makes this first attempt and he runs and he like one step jumps off the front of a motorcycle into a superman punch and knocks this guy off his bike. Of course, he gets beaten up afterwards with some baseball bats, but whatever. You know, he's still new. But, like, I love this because this moment, Patrick, is Bruce Wayne as Bruce Wayne seeing something wrong with Gotham, having someone by his side that matters to him, a person in Gotham who represents all the people in Gotham that he wants to protect, and he has this insane feeling of duty to do that and it manifests itself and he gets his butt kicked but she's there to take him home and care for him and nurse him back to health and it's in that moment where you know that leads to the proposal and the discovery of the bat cave during the proposal so batman becomes forever tied to this moment with her that ends up of course being tragic and it's just a brilliant way to tell this story because of how it turns him. It gives him, I don't know, man, so much more depth than just he grew up as a kid who missed his parents and then decided to become a vigilante 20 years later. You know what I mean? Like it fills in the gap, I think in a realistic way, in a logical way. And I just love their relationship so much. I, I love seeing them together. I'm rooting for them. It makes me just want to cry when I realize that, you know, they're not going to be able to be together more so than any of these other characters. And, you know, I think part of that also, to be honest, there's a big part of me that would say, I hate that there has never been another usage of this character in Batman lore to this time. So here we are nearly what 30 years almost later and the phantasms never come back which is crazy to me in the world of comic books 
But I think it also enhances how I feel about Andrea Beaumont because I haven't gotten to see anything else. All I have to live with is this picture of her and Bruce together. And that's what makes it so special and meaningful to me. We talked about how the film handles Bruce and Batman, but more importantly, how this film uses its original villain, the Phantasm, to show a side of vigilanteism that Batman could be if he chose to let go of his ideals is fascinating. So I wondered if you thought that it was an effective device to explore Bruce's struggle with being Batman, because this is what we do in a lot of Batman movies. We want to find out what it's like to get inside his head and see him have to go through this process of, should I be a vigilante? Should I push it to the limit or not? And in this one, you know, comparatively to say the Dark Knight, right? It's going to be the Joker who is a foil to him. It's a different way to explore that character. Here it's the Phantasm who is essentially like a Batman who just goes all the way to the point of execution as justice. So maybe it's kind of like the Red Hood in a lot of ways and what ends up happening with that character in Batman lore. So did you find that to be an interesting thing for the film to deal with throughout it? I think that it it's familiar because we see that with Razagul and his motivation. We see it with Bane and his motivation. The motivation I think is familiar, but the execution and seeing a similar looking character to Batman along with, I think a fresh take on what it would look like in kind of a close way to see if Batman became a vigilante, it would be this guy. I think the character is fantastic because of the fact that he does ask us to question that, not to question our motives, but to say, is someone who dresses up in all black and is mysterious justified in the actions he takes? Also, the the voice acting in this reminded me a little bit of the computer from Flight of the Navigator for a minute until I got used to it. But I think that seeing the Phantasm or seeing Phantasm in this, it creates a probably more, not more interesting foil, but a more deliberate foil for Batman. So we can make the justification, make the argument for Joker, Roz, and Bane in Nolan's trilogy in those different iterations. But watching Phantasm do what he does and knowing later on what his motivation is, it does cause us to look back and go, is Batman justified? Should he do more? And so in a lot of ways, if we see Batman singularly without any kind of comparison in context, we think of him as a vigilante. I mean, all of these characters in the Batverse who don't like him call him a vigilante. But you're only a vigilante compared, you know, as much as you are compared to someone else who's worse than you. And I think that's where Phantasm comes in is he represents the worst of what Batman could become. And I think it would be a really cool psychological kind of portrayal on one level, but he also makes those kind of brooding doom moments with his victims a lot more scary, a lot more vicious because of the fact that he has no filter he's like 
your time to die is right now. And there's no question it's going to happen. Whereas I think if we didn't see him next to Batman, I think we would think Batman has no soul. He doesn't have rules. He doesn't have a stopping point. And that's where I think Phantasm makes a great mark is the fact that he allows us to see Batman as Bruce Wayne. And he allows us to see Batman as someone who does have a conscience, someone who does have limits for better or for worse in what he does. And it gives him meaning, Aaron, because it would be one thing to just have somebody who goes off and just kills people who just wants to watch the world burn, as it were. But Batman doesn't. And having the Phantasm as his nemesis in this one is a really great way of showing that Batman does have a way to, I mean, he filters things and he does have a brain and he's able to walk through and say, no, this is something I can't do and won't do. And for that, I think we can cheer for him in that regard. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the interesting and fun things about this is Gordon defends him in this movie. Gordon says at one point, you know, Batman wouldn't do that. He argues with the rest of the cops who are trying to pin this murder on Batman, pin these killings. And he's like, no, he doesn't kill. That's his rule. He will not break it. And so we get a little hint of the bond and the relationship between those two characters. The vengeance thread is, is pretty strong and kind of handled in a very direct way through some dialogue as well. When Andrea comes to fight the Joker, which I would love to hear when I'm done saying this, whether or not you were expecting that because it kind of comes in in like the third act out of nowhere. And I wondered how that worked for you, but she comes in to end up taking on the Joker and he arrives to stop her and he does. And he's like, I hate that we're in this situation at this point, but he, he, and he addresses her very pointedly and he says, but Andy, what will vengeance solve? And she says, if anyone knows the answer to that, Bruce, it's you. And he takes that and he lets her go and continues to pursue the Joker, right? And and that is a very Dark Knight-esque moment for him where he's wrestling with what is the cost of not doing this, right? Versus what it would be worth to get this killer off the streets and, and understanding what she's doing. But I think it comes into full perspective and how the film does it at the very end. And this was almost my connecting point. It's a fantastic piece of dialogue from our man, Alfred. And he says, vengeance blackens the soul, Bruce. I've always feared that you would become that which you fought against. You walk the edge of that abyss every night, but you haven't fallen in yet. And I thank heaven for that. And I think that's the difference. And that is what we see here. And that is what makes Batman one of the things, but that's one of the main things that makes Batman such a compelling character because he could be all of us, Patrick, but because we all, I think on some level know that we don't necessarily believe we're strong enough to be Batman. It's always amazing to see that character act in such a way that we would want to act. We want to believe that we would be Batman, but I think most of us probably in our heart of hearts know that enough falling dominoes and we're going to be the phantasm. 
And it makes us look in a mirror. It makes us reflect on that. And I think it does so in this story in a particularly powerful way because that reflection is something that's so beloved. It's not a villain in the sense that it's someone we don't care what happens to. And it's just this bad guy like Raza Ghul or Bane, who's just a over the top, you know, terrorist. It's the person you're in love with. And then how do you reconcile that and that relationship at the same time you're trying to hold true to your values? Like how strong must you be in order to do that? And we get to see obviously here what it costs, right? For him as well. So I love it. I love the way that it uses the story to kind of explore that. But, you know, to my earlier question, so the Joker pops into this, not really a direct villain for Batman in the sense that he usually is. Did you think that it was a good addition to the story or not? Well, I've got to say Mark Hamill is brilliant as always. I think he surprises me. He surprised me when I first found out that he plays the Joker, not just in this, but in uh, Batman TAS. He also, just as a side note, he also plays other characters in uh, the TV series The Flash. His voice work is phenomenal, Aaron. It's unrecognizable. And I think that that says a lot about this actor that we on the screen only know as Luke Skywalker. I love the fact that he's diversified and he's made a name for himself as a voice actor and as a pivotal character in the Batverse. I enjoyed every moment that I saw Joker on the screen. However, I don't know that he added a ton for my personal experience. I think he was a probably a blunt reminder that he's still a part of Bat, Batman's world and that he will never go away. But it didn't take away from my enjoyment of seeing him on the screen. I loved the scene with him in his hideout, the old uh, World's Fair, and just interacting with the animatronic maid or or woman or whatever it was, yeah, all those it's just it's just great and it's it's pure Joker. It's just kind of sadistic. Oh my gosh, she's cutting bologna for him and he's eating this raw bologna and all this stuff. But I think that he, for my take, was a just a familiar input so that we could kind of feel connected to the bat first but i don't think we needed to i think phantasm was doing just fine on his own and the story was compelling enough that i don't think it needed joker yeah i mean i i guess that's probably fair it could have essentially been any gangster i think it made it more interesting and more fun and so i i like it but i mean i i guess i would agree i wouldn't say I would say the Joker as a character, psychologically speaking, doesn't necessarily add anything super heavy to this mm-hmm. that someone he, he else reinforces could. the things that are going on in it for sure. He does, though. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the I love the World's Fair is his hideout because it plays back to those memories of them at the World's Fair sure. with it being this romantic place for them in their early days and a part of their beginning of their relationship and yet now here it is at the end of their relationship and he's having to tell her to go so he can stop the joker because that's what he does he stops the joker he doesn't kill the joker like she wants to do he stops him 
Did you have any thoughts on the violence of this film at all? Did you notice the violence? There, There is definitely some in this for an animated flick. I don't think it ever, you know, crosses the line into kind of goriness by any means. But, you know, there's definitely some killing and lots of punching and lots of bullets flying. Yeah, this is a, you know, a noir setting. And so I, you know, the world of the world of Dick Tracy, the untouchables, things like that kind of expected that kind of violence and living in 2020 where all bets are off when it comes to any kind of content when you just put the word ma next to it you could make a simple cartoon just completely be incredibly offensive or uber violent i think my buddy matt was telling me about the latest harley quinn movie or tv series that is just I don't remember if it's a movie or anyway, it was an animated something. It's TV series that has, it's very graphic from what I understand. Very great. Yeah. So comparatively speaking, this is very tame at the time. 93, I think it was kind of pushing some boundaries, but I still think it's, I want to say approachable. It's accessible to a lot of audiences. As you mentioned before, it's a very, it's an adult centric batman story because the content is very serious i wouldn't want my seven-year-old watching this i don't think he'd really enjoy it either because he doesn't necessarily get the things that we're enjoying about it but i would attribute the violence or the level of kind of intensity to that of jurassic world camp cretaceous you know the assumption that people are getting killed but you don't necessarily see it in like gratuitous ways so yeah it was fine for me Good. I'm glad. I feel very much the same way about it. And I I think you nailed it. It's noir. It fits in that tone very well. A lot of it's off screen as well. You know, you see the phantasm push a statue onto a man who is clearly inside of a grave. And then we flash to a shot of (laughs) the statue on top of the grave. So we know what just happened, but we didn't have to see it happen. I actually prefer that at this point in my life, in my in my age. Although I do want to check out Harley Quinn. Maybe I'll do that after the show, actually. Maybe I'll check it out. I, I have a lot of friends who've raved about it and say it is absolutely fantastic. So I don't know how I would feel about it. But people were really excited about it getting renewed for a third season when the recent announcement came out a couple days ago about all of DC's animated and live action content moving to HBO Max for good and Harley Quinn getting renewed. So I guess my we'll wife, find out, maybe. Yeah, my wife is watching. I think she watched the first half of the movie with me, and that scene came up with the statue, and she was like, oh, gosh. <laughs> I said, that's what happens in the world of Gotham City, babe. <laughs> you yep. get statues thrown on you in a graveyard. You do. You do. But no squishy blood, you know, gurgling no. out <laughs> of the statue, thankfully. <laughs> Just ask Matt Modine. That didn't happen either, you know? <laughs> oh, gosh. That, oh, my goodness gracious. Sorry. All right, well, we're going to talk connecting points at this point, and they are basically the same thing in a sense. I'll go first since I'll kind of set up your moment and your kind of, you know, exclamation point, as it were. My connecting exclamation point. Yeah, your connecting exclamation point. I like that. The scene that is pretty undeniably the connecting point for most everybody who's watched this movie is towards the end of the film, right before maybe the third act as it begins to get going is Bruce visiting his parents' gravesite and wrestling with the decision of whether or not to be Batman and what it's going to cost him, especially with regards to his relationship with Andrea. 
The dialogue is awesome. He's standing there. It's in a thunder and lightning storm, which I think makes pretty much anything more impactful at all when you're having a monologue. And he says, it doesn't mean I don't care anymore. I don't want to let you down, honest, but but it just doesn't hurt so bad anymore. You can understand that, can't you? Look, I can give money to the city. They can hire more cops. Let someone else take the risk, but it's different now. Please, he's begging to his parents at their grave. I need it to be different now. I know I made a promise, but I didn't see this coming. I didn't count on being happy. Please tell me that it's okay. And as he's like agonizing over this to his parents, talking to them, Andrea comes into scene from behind and says, maybe they already have. Maybe they sent me. And they have this very touching hug in the rain and in this embrace. And this is what sells it, man. This is what makes this a five-star movie for me. It's what makes it so emotionally impactful. It's what makes it a special Batman story is that, you know, it's a perfect depiction of the struggle that Bruce has with being Batman and what it's going to cost him to have a normal life. And we often kind of know, but we know in a different context because we've never seen him actually get to this point. It reminds me a lot of what happened in On Her Majesty's Secret Service with James Bond. And Sorry for spoilers, folks, but that's the only movie that James Bond gets married in. He finally settles down. The misogynistic, womanizing James Bond falls in love and he has a wife. And she promptly gets killed. <laughs> and he has to deal with that because that's his life. And he brought that on to her when he chose to be with her. And so Bruce is fighting against that. He knows he can't do that. But he's made this promise to his parents to make up for their murder, to save Gotham, to clean it up. And there's just something so insanely painful to me, Patrick, about him begging his dead parents for permission to not avenge them anymore and to contribute in other ways to let somebody else do it so that he can be happy. And you want to just scream at the TV, I think, because you want to believe any parent in their right mind, Patrick would be like, yes, son, marry the woman you love, live a life. That's what's going to make us happy. That's what's going to make us feel like you have been fulfilled and been able to move on and, be happy with us gone. Like that's what they would want. And he can't do it. And we hate it for him. And we understand that he needs to be Batman, not like in Nolan's trilogy, because he needs the identity, but he needs to do this for his parents. And it is such a moving reason for him, I think. And the way that this scene plays out, it is just so iconic and so emotional uh, for me that I, I love it. I think it is within context, especially once you've seen the whole story and you understand the tragedy of how it is definitely going to end with them never being able to be together. Man, it's it's awesome um, with regards to the creation of Batman as an ongoing crime fighter for the rest of his life. And th this is what he went through in seeing that, switch flipped to the point where he becomes the Batman that we often see depicted 
on a regular basis. So we talk about the fact that anybody can be Batman, but if we take that one step further and say, could we say yes to this? If we said anyone can be Batman as long as they have this kind of burden. And I would think most of us would say, no, I'm going to live my life the way I want. And I'm going to get what I feel like I deserve. And that moment, Aaron, was really interesting. It was almost somewhat messianic where it's as if he's in the garden like Jesus and saying, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. And then he goes, but not my will, yours be done. And then he ultimately goes to the cross. And I think in a lot of ways, that's somewhat of what's happening in this scene where he wrestles with the things that he wants, but he understands the greater good from his perspective. And for me, the exclamation point comes when he is walking past Alfred and he either has donned the cowl or he's about to. And Alfred says two words, my God. And those two words really do say a lot. They say for Alfred, he has made this choice and now I'm going to take on that burden with him as his friend. And I think back to Michael Caine and his relationship as Alfred to Bruce and how that kind of love, that kind of relationship that he has with Bruce of seeing him grow up and taking care of him, he is now not just putting his life in jeopardy, but he is now taking on so much more of the world's burden than maybe he shouldn't. And at the same time, you you don't, it's weird. You see someone transfer, transfer, transform into the thing that you want them to. And in most instances as an audience, you're like, yeah, Batman. But in this case, you're like, no, don't. And it's different. It's very different because you don't, because you know what he's giving up. And if you were him, as we're trying to kind of get in this world of his, as we're, we're asked to be invited into that, we're like Alfred and we're saying, my God, what are you doing? My God, don't do this. I mean, anything could come after that. And I love that nothing was said beyond those two words because it left us open to kind of interpret what we thought Alfred was thinking or what we were thinking. For some people, it was like, my God, go get him. Or my God, don't do this. Or my God, I don't know if you have a brain in that head of yours because you're going to get yourself killed. Just depending on who you know as Batman and how you kind of come to understand this character, seeing Alfred's reaction and, and hearing those two words come out of his mouth, I really think put a tragic bow on this character saying he's not coming back. He has made a decision. He is not ever going to entertain the thought of being with someone ever again. Like he is laying that down and now he's got this new life that for better or for worse, I'm going to be a part of and I have to make sure that I'm still here for him as his friend, not just his butler. But I think in some ways we're Alfred in that moment because we realize the weight of what he's doing and how that's going to affect everything around him. And so I think it's just, it's a really important moment in the movie for sure. Great. Yeah. I'm glad we had the same thing then because it, it's awesome. And it is, it's the perfect exclamation connecting, connecting exclamation point Sorry, <laughs> to that scene. For sure. Well, that wraps up another episode here at Feelin' Film. Coming up this week, we have a packed slate of content for you. In addition to the already out FF Plus covering Antebellum, The Nest, 
and Kajillionaire. We also have new content from our Black Label team, our donor pick episode, The Dead Poet Society with Jacob Neff, followed by the BVS Bridge episode, The Dark Knight Returns. So have fun enjoying all of that this week. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation. We will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.